What is Author's Dozen? That was the question I asked on our very first episode. Our very top episode was about Ted Cruz and butter. One week I just talked to myself for a half an hour. So, in answer to that question, I don't know what Author's Dozen is. I wrote 12 books in 12 months, and now I'm revising some. And that's why we're in Author's Dozen Revised. And I'm tempted to do what I always do and add some kind of symmetry to the beginning and ending of a project to make it seem like I had the ending in mind all the time. But this was a journey, and you guys are following along with me in real time. A lot of this I didn't plan, but I'm putting out a book uh, before too long with all of what I learned and what I wrote for the podcast put into a concise and edited form. It's the author's dozen nonfiction project. Be on the lookout for that. But that's one of many things I'm revising these days. And this is the end of our series on revision and the end of the podcast. Wow. In this series on revision, I've outlined a process for taking a baseline creative work and refining it into something brilliant. Or at least more brilliant than it used to be, but there you go. The steps, in order, again. Comfort, we already have a completed work. It is easier to remain the same than to reform. Number two, desire. We desire to improve upon our completed work. Number three is the push. We must perceive imperfections and be convinced of the necessity of adaptation. Number four, we adapt. We find innovative solutions to overcome obstacles, costs, and naysayers. Number five, we win. Reform is achieved. Number six, the costs are assessed, mourned, and reversed if possible. Number seven, we return. We get back to comfort with an improved artistic work. And then we have this week, which is less about the revised work as it is the revised person. Step number eight of the revision process is refined. Retain wisdom and knowledge from the revision. Put your work into the world. And then put yourself into something else. See, now that you've made the work as good as it can be, your work is released. It's beyond you. It's in the world and you can't take it back. And where does that leave you? We live in a world so skewed by ownership that we, the humans who do the creating, are overshadowed by our creations. We no longer care about the creators behind Superman and Batman. All we care about now is who holds the copyright there too. That's the only person who gets to say who the super friends get to be. It's the owners. Don't be fooled by this economic illusion. The only thing that sticks around from project to project is you. I'm reminded of the one of 83 tales that Walt Disney put out regarding how he created Mickey Mouse. Um, but one, and the most credible, is that he created Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, and uh, he made it for Universal. And guess what? Universal, they handed it off to somebody else. They were like, oh, good job creating, but we own it. We get to do what we want now. And Walt goes off, and he vows to only work for himself, and he makes the Mickey of the Mouse. And that's a story not so much about the evils of copyright or whatever. It's a story about how the creator moved on and the creative force moved on. Oswald the Lucky Rabbit is lame. 
He has no value in and of himself. He doesn't do anything. Neither does Mickey. You can see that today in the fact that Mickey Mouse is a nothing of a personality. He almost does not exist because he is the mascot for a corporation. He cannot be allowed to do anything new or creative. He must be the symbol of stability. Because what sticks around from project to project isn't the creation, but the creator. I've been thinking about what to move on to next. I'll soon be finished with my edits and rewrites on two novels, which begins a long, slow process through the morass of publishing. I have ten additional novels and a non-fiction project that I could tackle on the writing side and rewriting side. Here's my plan. Alright, number one, I iron out Ironclad Nocturne. <laughs> um, so here's where that project's at. So last you guys heard, Ironclad Nocturne was about this machine planet and these ironclad people who get to go through it on these like Iron Man suits, and it's pretty rad. Um, I've combined that with a number of concepts from Siren Deep, which has many of the same themes and conflicts. But I started thinking a lot more about tone near the end. And after I was done writing it, I went back and rewrote it into less of like a machine with a bunch of, you know, civilized layers and whatnot, but more of a dark and weird thing that like, I mean, imagine living inside a machine, you know, trying to eke out an existence from uh, within this weird and potentially threatening mechanism. I mean, like if, if you were like living in a grandfather clock or something, I don't know. And I started thinking about the story in a number of other ways. I took it from like a visual angle and I was thinking like, oh, wouldn't it be interesting if the competing factions in this world, I mean, they already own different parts of it, but what if their power was specifically tied to certain external markers and colors? And so going back to my filmmaking and color theory days, I decided to give the royal house a kind of amber glow and the opposing force, the church, I gave them kind of a midnight blue and those colors not only say something about the faction that they belong to, and not only kind of subtly hint at where things are going, but they also like contrast really well. And if you just picture those two next to each other, I mean, you'll, you'll see it on like any poster for a movie these days. It's got the orange and the blue, and they are on opposite sides of the color wheel. They contrast really well. And that's what I want my factions to do in the story. Um, I also worked that color theory into the main theme of the book, which is the changing nature of power, how power changes you when you take it on. So the idea being that the uh, constructs of the world, the sort of power that these people use, uh, is kind of built to the same shell material that you saw in uh, Siren Deep. And the more of yourself you give to the machine, and the more compromise you make with it, the less you hold yourself back, and the less of your own color you add to it. So essentially, the characters with the most power are going to be brighter. They're going to be uh, whiter, actually, because they are going to have less of their own personality brought to the matrix. 
and more just surrendered to the mechanism itself. And then I started thinking, you know, I already like gave it a visual angle. Why don't I add like a, a video game angle? So I was thinking, oh, wouldn't it be interesting to thematically uh, pull this into the, um, you know, we were talking about economic systems and how uh, the royals are capitalists and the, um, the church is more like uh, socialist or whatever. Um, and the system that you like buy into the most, you can actually draw energy from those constructs. So you go to the um, blue side, if you've got like the uh, socialist currency, and you've got the red side if you've got the red currency because what you want your story to do is to make sense <laughs> and you want to make limiting mechanics so if you have one faction who is very pleased with the protagonist and the protagonist has like the currency that they're wanting uh, she can recharge at their station and so that gives a tangible mechanism to the faction owning a certain piece of territory. You can lay down and recharge on their territory. It's pretty cool. And that way, your enemy is pretty much out of luck when they come into your territory and you're just like, Hey, this is cool. This is my turf and I can eat my turf. Yum, yum, yum. And you're done for, ya big stupid. And making sense of the story from all those different angles allows me to take out a lot of exposition and not just overly abstractify everything. Give it some concrete game mechanics and visual mechanics. A second project that I'm really excited about is Run Prometheus. I hated that book when I first wrote it, but now it's the one that, you know, once I'm finished revising this piece of work, I'm moving on to that one. There are a bunch more ideas I want to incorporate. The world of AI is kind of mind-bending in a way that I've never seen anybody talk about in fiction. I mean, it is a sort of fantasy thing in a sci-fi setting. And I think it would be cool to treat AI with, you know, the awe that it deserves. Because we take a lot of things for granted about AI. So in Run Prometheus, uh, you have a character who creates an all-powerful AI who has only one goal, which is to make her happy. The trap that people fall into with robots and things like that is to make them human, which is not to say that that's always a bad choice, but the fact is a sufficiently advanced program would not only have a complete different set of uh, morality and priorities, uh, but would also be like beyond anything we can comprehend in terms of power. And I fleshed that out in the book a little bit, but um, there are some really interesting concepts that I didn't think of. So, you know, one concept is uh, when does a robot become dangerous? And it's the second you turn it on, because if you tell it to go and do something and you try to, like, turn it off or something before it accomplishes that goal, um, it is in that robot's best interest to kill you. Or what about the example of like the paperclip making machine? Its goal is to just make paperclips and it will eventually consume the entire universe uh, until everything is a paperclip because it does not have any parameters or uh, other motives. It just wants paperclips, baby. And I also, you know, in the mind-bending uh, sphere of the book, I decided to take away some of the 
more pedestrian ways that the AI begins to manipulate the world. And I really want to change them into something that only an AI can do. Um, I, I'm thinking, for instance, of like the world um, kind of doing what it does now, which is, I mean, it seems aimless and it seems like there's so much chaos everywhere. Um, but what if that is orchestrated by some AI to make people inclined to accept an AI rule, you know? And a very smart AI could do that with, you know, minimal casualties. Or like, what if an AI wanted to start a religion? That could be pretty interesting. So like, what if an AI were to propose an idea that you just found so mind-bending and, I don't know, triggered some sort of religious experience in your brain? You almost couldn't help it, even if you knew it was coming from a place of artificialiness. You would be, I don't know. I mean, you could potentially make yourself believe, well, maybe there's something behind the AI. Maybe the religion believes that this thing is so advanced that it went back in time and created humanity. Because the point of the book is that if there is something more powerful than us, potentially all-powerful, we just kind of have to hope that it's good, or else we are doomed. And it's all about trying to figure out if that all-powerful thing is good, and how that all-powerful thing could potentially just fool us into thinking it was good. And what's the best way to live your life when there is uncertainty, and a certain level of faith is required to do anything? Um, my third idea is a mashup of ideas from Hollow and SS Terminus, and this is still, you know, something that's like kind of on the back burner, but... Um, one complaint I had, you know, and others had about my first novel was that it kind of jumped to the end. By the time my characters in the book Hollow got enough power to fight the bad guy, it was already word 40,000 and I had to wrap things up pretty quick. The same thing kind of happened with SS Terminus, but for completely different reasons. And the more I think about those two fantasy historical novels, the more I realize that they complement one another and broaden one another's worlds and stories. So um, the kind of uh, fantasy western that I was writing with Hollow uh, fits in pretty nicely with the colonial um, superpower status of the uh, SS Terminus, where you have these sailing ships uh, trying to maintain hegemony against a newfound alien presence. Um, and in Hollow, we have this mysterious disappearance, and people are like, oh, where did these people go? How could they possibly be transported away? And I think those two could at least mesh together in a really interesting way. And it's always good to at least have uh, some other conflict going on in the book that doesn't necessarily revolve around the protagonist. So um, if one mission is happening and another mission is happening, suddenly you get the idea that this world is big and broad and is three-dimensional. And the world, though serving as a really good place for the story to pan out, is not necessarily just built to serve the main characters. So those are next steps, and you probably won't hear about them because I'm stopping the podcast. Um, when I look at all these projects and the project that they were inside, Authors Dozen, I do see a danger, and it's the potential to be swallowed by my own progeny to be chained to a creative work obsessed with its success and failure and equating it with my own. But the only thing that sticks around from project to project is you. 
Reputation doesn't stick. Fame doesn't stick. But so long as you live, the creating and refining process is what makes you more creative and more refined. What is Author's Dozen? Well, it's ending now, though I plan on dropping by every so often to let you guys know what's happening in the podcast and the works I created. And maybe to, you know, if you like what I do, you can follow me to the next thing. Because what sticks around is me. There are two ways to grow. One is to twist like a vine around that which you have. You're attached to what's external, rising and falling with its rise and fall. Have you met the old man so attached to his past that he hates everything that came afterwards? Have you met the creature that human beings become when we allow a thing to determine our wealth and joy? And when the podcast or books or any other tangible inevitably fails or fades, have you met the one who fails and fades with it? I'm sure you have. Bitter old folks. They don't necessarily need to be old either. But have you met the one who lives no matter the circumstance? Have you met the old man who, body failing, culture fading, friends and belongings going back to the dirt, makes new culture, new friends, and new belongings? The second way to grow doesn't come about from detachment from the external, but the freedom from it. This way to grow stretches to the sky, brings forth fruit, drinks the sun, and shades the grass. It stands because it is reliant on only the things that remain evergreen. And the tree can be like a giving tree. It can give parts of itself away, and eventually the whole of itself away. Because everyone gets depressed about that stupid giving tree book, and I'm like, the tree dies, you know? That's what trees do. They die, man. Whatever happened to those seeds from the apple that I gave the boy? Maybe he pooped him out and it became another tree. And that tree has babies now. And so, screw you guys for thinking that it's sad that a guy chops down a tree. Yes, this is what I chose to be angry about. Uh, you know, and I like to get silly. I'm just a silly billy, and this is a silly little project. And it's coming to an end. Your project will be done one day, I hope, and I hope you move on to the next one with only yourself remaining. Because we cling to money and ownership and platforms because we think they'll give us the opportunity to do the next thing and the next thing. And soon, everything becomes a tool which with we reach the next tool and the next tool. And we make our work not to make it, but to make it a tool. Soon, everything is utilitarian in a way that is only aimed to grow itself. Ironclad Nocturne is very nearly refined, but it has, in the process, refined me. Because I took the time to refine its theme, I've come to a concrete understanding about the world, and its theme, that's much more specific and sharp and powerful than my previous belief that power equals generally bad times for everybody. By really digging down into the mechanics and characters of Ironclad Nocturne, I discovered that in that world, and probably in ours, the path to power is through compromise with the world. The more you compromise, the more you win. But the more you become nothing more than compromise. You win the world by becoming the world. You command the machine, but it's no longer you who commands. You're more a machine than the other guy, but to what end? You're doing the bidding of that which you claim to control. The machine is capitalism, the machine is communism, the machine is your sect or party, Descend, therefore, into the power over any such system at your own peril. The royalist speaks with the churchgoer. 
The machine doesn't turn without human souls, but it doesn't turn for those souls. It turns for Dawn and the King in Amber. But one of the Diarchs gives back to the people, Gabriel said. Sure, Tora replied. One plays the game better than the other. One is willing to do almost anything for power. The other is willing to do anything. You'd rather Midnight's children abandon morality? Now listen, it's not about what I'd have you do. It's not about morals either. Let me ask you, is it moral to bring a knife to a gunfight? No, it's foolishness. Whatever wins you the game, wins you the game. And the Lost Cause can bicker afterwards about how unfair everything turned out to be, about how they would have done things ever so much better. The fact remains that, by losing, they didn't do those things. I mentioned in another episode, just make your characters fight, and you'll find out stuff about them, and yourself. Ooh, I'm a guru, everybody. <laughs> uh, for real, though, what will it profit a man if he gain the whole world, but lose his soul? What is Author's Dozen? Author's Dozen contains compromises with the world, to be sure. Like how I throw in jokes, even though I'm bad at it, and it doesn't add anything to the project. And sure, I walk away from Author's Dozen with some tangible assets. Uh, you can hear how happy I'll be to develop and deploy those assets, which are the books, by the way. I have some things here that are refined and will add to the world. However, there's part of this project that sticks around no matter where or when I am. The part that sticks around is me. And for an example, listen to my voice. I have learned how to record better. Uh, I've, I've learned how to um, not say um so much. I've also learned how to use some programs and to compress my voice and normalize the volume. And I'm sure your ears are happy to hear that. So what, what does this teach us? Don't disengage from your work. Do more, and more often. Just as refining makes you refined, the sloppy makes you sloppy, the lazy makes you lazy. The phoned-in project reflects and shapes the character phoning it in. Over the past year, I've become better insofar as I've done work that I'm proud of. However, I've also sensed myself becoming bitter and judgmental insofar as I've used work as a tool. See... So long as my work is just a tool to change the world, then everything is worthless and I should probably just stop writing altogether. But if my work is also a tool to change me, then it's the pursuit of perfection that will make me more excellent. I mean, you as a human being can tell when you're being used, right? It doesn't feel good. Like, no matter how nice a person is being to you, if you feel like they're being nice to you know, gain social points or to come off as good to someone else. Then you feel like a project and you kind of hate them. But have you ever felt someone just like you for you and just not see you as a project but as a person? Well, actually, the same thing applies to your projects. I mean, they come off as false if you have false intentions. If you are trying to do a project to, you know, gain social points, or come off as good to some people, oh man, you kind of hate it. That's why I don't use my art most of the time to preach to people, because then the art is a tool. That's the problem with a lot of Christian media, is it's not made for the excellence of the media. But sometimes it is, and sometimes it's both. And you can tell, you can tell that it's a you know, a passion project. 
it feels like somebody cared about the art enough to make it amazing and they cared about you and they cared about the time that you spend you know looking at their art and being affected by it and insofar as the project is false or shabby or insofar as the project is trying to horn in an agenda into your life and you feel like the filmmaker isn't trying to relate to you but is trying to you know win you it makes you feel like a big pile of garbage so i apologize if i ever used this medium to like as like a marketing tool or whatever because most of the time it wasn't most of the time i've used this podcast to talk to you like you are me to give you information and thoughts that i myself would have loved to have had in the past less of a teacher of mechanics and means of manipulation and more of a teacher who just i don't know i want to talk to you guys and i want to bring out what's the best in you i want to get at the soul of what makes you create what you create so there we have it you know i've done uh 63 of these episodes this will be number 64 and it's weird saying goodbye to something like this and it's not that it was especially impressive or especially time intensive though it was and it was <laughs> but it's because when i look back at the past year and i think about all the other things i could have been doing other than this podcast and the books i i would have done it all over again and this is not an emotional podcast i mean if I started to cry on this thing, I could just edit it out, you know? And so whatever emotion I display to you, you know that I meant for you to hear it. It's kind of false. Um, but I got a little bit emotional when I thought of ending this thing. And I looked back at all the episodes and all the books. Um, just the sheer volume of it all and not just in like word count or whatever but the amount of thoughts and ideas that are no longer just things floating around in my head but are concrete and you can go and look at them at authorsdozen.com but they're there and i'm always gonna have that you know before this year i had like four books to my name maybe four and a half but now i have i mean you can do the math right but it's at least a dozen more. And if they never bring me a dime, which they haven't, but if they never bring me a dime and they retain their, you know, flawed nature, I'm just proud that they exist. And I'm proud that at least one or two people, you know, read them and liked them or, you know, learned from them at least. I may eventually take those books down as, like, free PDFs and, you know, ebooks or whatever. I may take them down if I ever decide to, you know, sell them someday, but where they are now, being free and fun and reflecting a lot of hard work, um, I just hope that you guys know that I did that because I care about I mean, making your life better. And 
I hope that comes across, and I hope you guys know that I really care about you because of the work that I put in um, and the lack of restitution I asked of you, that I don't really want anything of you. And in fact, I actually want to give you the best thing that I can give you. And that's not how I felt every day. You know, some days I didn't have a lot of what I wanted out of this project. And some days I was really frustrated. And I really did see this, you know, whole deal as a tool to advance something. And it was always with the goal of advancing, you know, in power or, you know, whatever, to, to get to a place where I could get my work out there and honestly do what I'm doing now giving the most number of people the most that I can give. And if you think I'm blowing smoke, then you can go and look at, you know, what I made you and what I asked in return, and you can judge for yourself. Because as I move into, you know, potentially publishing things, I mean, I may need the publishing for money, right? I may need it for, you know putting things in bookstores and getting the word out marketing-wise. But that's like a numbers game. But if you're listening to this, then the only two numbers that mean anything is me and you. And I just want you to know that it means a whole heck of a lot that a lot of you guys uh, tuned in and cared about something that I do. And it means more that you might have gained something from it. And that matters a lot to me because I think about where you are and where I have been. And I don't want you stepping in the same, you know, holes that I did. And the thought of meeting you someday and hearing that something I said in the hours and hours of, like, content that I put out or whatever silly thing this is, hearing that something stuck and set you free to do what was best for you. Even the thought that that could potentially exist makes me very happy. So thank you. So, what do you say? You want to do the same long-ass outro we always do? Of course you do. And this time it's the whole song. Music for podcast. It's the theme song for authors dozen. It's the show where you listen to Paul and he make you friends. He's your best friends till the ends. Nah, these are the lyrics he came up with a long time ago and didn't make up on the spot. No, you see, it rhymes, so he must have thought of this long time ago. It's the podcast, Authors Dozen Podcast. It's the outro, and we're all done with the outro, you know. 
Boo. Da da da. Ba. 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 Ba